This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ong-Whaley. And I'm Logan Ziegler, Program Coordinator at JMU Civic. And I'm Jacqueline Dobrin, Communication Specialist here at JMU Civic. As part of our 9-11 at 20 series, in this episode, we talk with Nicole Johnson, who graduated from James Madison University in 2002 with a Bachelor of Science degree and received a commission as a military intelligence officer. Nicole was stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado and Buckley Air Force Base, Colorado. She also deployed to Iraq as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Nicole later obtained her master's degree from Johns Hopkins University in Government and Security Studies and currently works as a program manager for U.S. Special Operations Command, providing acquisition support for enterprise and tactical communication systems. We hope you enjoy her story and invite you to engage with us in the conversation on social media at JMU Civic on Twitter and Facebook and at JMU Duke's Vote on Instagram. Nicole Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. I wonder if you can start by sharing why you joined the military. And this next question actually comes from Colonel Swain. Did you realize what you were getting into when you joined the ROTC at JMU? So I don't think anyone realizes what they're getting into when they join the military or join ROTC, right? You have all these uh, you know, preconceived notions and these um, Hollywood... Uh, Hollywoodized ideas of like what the military is going to like, going to be like, and um, it's nothing, nothing like any of that. Um, I joined the military for a lot of practical reasons. Uh, I joined to pay for college. Uh, I was taking out school loans. I was in debt. I needed a way to pay for school. My parents hadn't saved up money. My father, who was a career army officer, uh, you know, mentioned that that was a, a a viable option. I had a friend who was taking ROTC. She's like, Hey, you know, there's a whole bunch of men in there. It's a great way to meet men. We should probably do this. You should probably do this. Let's, uh, let's give it a try. And, and so there was, you know, for like, for many things in this world, there's no one reason. It was kind of the confluence of all of those coming together that, um, made me just give it a try. And I enjoyed it. Um, I am the oldest of four children. I have three younger brothers. And so it kind of, uh, you know, the role of kind of being in charge came naturally um, as the oldest child and and I enjoyed it. And so that's that's kind of where I landed and how I landed in the military. And it's been great. I don't regret my service. I don't regret anything about my service. I'm very proud. I don't think anyone looks back on their service um, without reflecting on the the pride that they have in serving. Where were you on September 11th, 2001? And what can you tell us about that day and how it changed you? So I was at uh, James Madison University. I was in my, I think it was senior year there, um, knowing I was going to go into the military, knowing I was going to be a commissioned officer. And I was uh, going about my business and I, I, I didn't even realize, um, you know, the weight of what had happened. I passed another cadet who was in ROTC, and he he said, I remember this um, 
he said, hey, did you hear a plane crash into the World Trade Center? I said, no. And kind of the the, the manner in which he, he said it, it, it didn't convey um, the enormity of, of the situation, the gravity of the situation that um, it was a passenger plane. He just said a plane. And so in, in my mind, I thought, oh, some pilot in a turboprop, something small, lost control, went off course, some sort of malfunction. I didn't understand really what what was going on. And I, I, so I went about my business. Um, I went to class. And then I got home and got in front of a TV. And I, I realized kind of what, what was going on in the world. Um, I called my friends. And, and, you know, their comment was, where are you? Where have you been? Um, we're all over. They were all over at one person's house. I went over there and we just watched the TV for hours and hours and hours and just Prior to that, you know, we had this idea, this false idea, really, um, you know, that America was impregnable, that, that, that we couldn't be attacked, right? And prior to that, there was Pearl Harbor. So, of course, um, we could have been attacked. But our, our memories tend to be, I think, not, not as long as they should be. It just, uh, our world was flipped upside down that day. And... I remember thinking that day that, that we're going to go to war, that we're going to do something. And I also remember thinking, you know, the, the, the we is in, uh, you know, of America, that, that we, the other people that I was sitting in that room with, we were all in ROTC, we're all in the Corps of Cadets, that those people in that room, we were probably all going to go to war. We didn't know what that meant, what that looked like. Um, we had some vague notion of, of what that would be. Everyone in that room did go to war. To phrase it like that and, and say these things out loud, probably you know for the first time ever, it's weird that that is part of my story as a as a human in this world. That um, we witnessed an attack on our country as college students, and then we all went off to war within a year or two, um, and many of us multiple times to go fight that war. That's what I remember about September 11th, and then I remember a year, a very vivid memory of one year later the one-year memorial of September 11th in uniform at um, my officer basic course in formation, in uniform, standing there um, while we remembered those that we had lost. And um, six months later, I was in Iraq. Can you share your experiences serving in the global war on terror and serving in Iraq? And how did those experiences impact you? So I always say... uh, I've said this to, to multiple veterans and, and other folks that um, nobody, everybody comes home from war permanently changed. And then I usually ask, how did it change you? Um, you know, to, to those veterans that have gone to war. And um, sometimes it's the experiences that you face. Sometimes it is just you as a person, how you react to those experiences. But everyone comes home in some way permanently changed. I see it in myself and I, I see it in my husband. and And so... Uh, I went over to Iraq as a young lieutenant. Uh, I was 23. I was a kid. You know, I just, I had uh, a, a platoon of soldiers uh, that I was in charge of. I led a, it's about a 50 vehicle convoy from Kuwait up to Iraq. Um, we were the largest MI company in the army. Um, it's a, it was about 200 people. It was the third ACR. <gasps> We, we spent, I think it was a day driving up. Uh, we ended up in Fallujah. That's, we were in Western Iraq. Um, on the way up, a small child 
I was in the lead vehicle on the way up, a small child spit on my vehicle. Uh, we were definitely not welcome in that, that region of Iraq. Uh, we were not heroes coming in. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, kind of a funny story. Uh, I didn't know, so I was in the lead vehicle. My platoon sergeant was in the, the last vehicle, 50 vehicles in between us, give or take. And I had never spoken on a radio before. Like I didn't know the tactical, pro like I had just graduated from my Intel school. I was 23 years old, but I had a Sprint Razor phone when I was in college and I knew how to talk on that. So I got on that, that mic and I keyed that mic and I, uh, I was chit chatting and I was just holding that just, oh, it's hot here. It is. Can you believe the sand? Like chatting away and about about 30 minutes into our our uh i don't know day and a half drive we pulled over just to make sure all the vehicles were still serviceable no one was having any issues not every vehicle had a radio but probably half of them did and uh i stepped out of my vehicle and i looked down the line of of all these humvees and and other tactical vehicles and and my platoon sergeant gets out of the last vehicle and starts sprinting as fast as he can to the first vehicle. I'm got my hands on my hips and I'm trying to figure out like, hmm, what's he running for? And our commander is in the middle vehicle. And so she just kind of walks up. She's, she was a major, I was a lieutenant. Uh, she walks up to me and, and she and my platoon sergeant arrive at my vehicle in front of me at about the same time. And he's out of breath and he's huffing and puffing. And she looks at me and then she turns and she looks at him and she just, just says, un-F your lieutenant. And I'm like, and then walks away. I'm like, oh, what did I, what did I do? And he's like, stop talking on the radio. Get off the radio. Don't touch the radio. <laughs> and I just, I did. I just didn't. Why would I know those things? I didn't know those things. And then in hindsight, it's a funny story to tell. Um, he walked, I didn't touch that radio. <laughs> Not unless I had to. <laughs> uh, and, and my platoon sergeant and I, we're still good friends. We still keep in touch to, to this day. Uh, I love him. I'd do anything for him. Uh, he took good care of me. Um, and I tried my best to take care of him. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, so we went up, we were in Fallujah. I had a uh, linguist team spread out from the uh, Syrian border uh, to Fallujah. And every day I would get in a vehicle. Um, it was two vehicles at that time, two soft skin Humvees. We didn't have up armored Humvees because it was the OEF um, one or OIF one. Um, so another platoon leader and I, and then our two, I had a specialist that was my driver. He had an E6. The four of us would drive either to the Syrian border um, and spend the night there and then pick up our reports and then come back. Or we'd drive to Fallujah, pick up our reports and come back. Uh, we had no crew served weapons. We, we had our M16s. We had four M16s and two soft skin Humvees. Um, and, you know, things initially really weren't, we didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't really, we weren't under attack. 
we didn't know what we thought our we were going to have to try and fight boredom like that's what we thought we were going to be there for and, and that we were all going to go home by christmas and we went in march we thought we'd be home by christmas and uh we weren't we were there a year we started getting shot at um when we would do these uh, these trips um we had to take different routes barrier routes we had to do we started put sandbags on our floor we started hanging um you know we didn't have armored vests we had flak vests we would hang those over the door and it was like a slow progression and a slow realization of the the danger that we were in six months into it i changed jobs i was no longer a platoon leader uh, my year had been up it was time for someone else to become a platoon leader and so i moved to staff and i was on the i was an aviation assistant s2 and i can remember telling my boss the s2 uh, great woman um she said hey do you still want to take trips do you still want to you know go off the fob do you do you still want to run convoys and i said i said i will do whatever you ask me to but i am i never want to volunteer to go off there's no part of me that ever wants to go off if you ask me to i will go but i don't ever want to go cuz i know that that means that's dangerous like i, I want to live i don't want to do that i didn't i didn't say all of that i just said if you ask me to i will go but i don't want to go a year later i i flew back uh i didn't take a convoy i was in an aviation unit so i flew in a black hawk back to kuwait spent about a week there uh and then we flew back to america it was something i reflect on with pride uh it makes you realize how much you can do without like running water shampoo like all those things that you know as a college student going out on a friday night to parties and and doing all of that um it was great but then your world just kind of flips and to go to war within a year of graduating college and and not having I mean, we rationed water when we got there because we didn't have enough to drink, so we couldn't shower, we couldn't wash our hair, um, we didn't have toilets, you know. For six, I wrote home the day we got porta potties. You know, <laughs> that was um, that was a, a pivotal moment in our lives. Like, it just makes you realize what what you really need in this life and what you really don't don't need, and, and what's nice, right? So. Um, that's kind of Iraq in a nutshell for me. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your experience as a woman serving in the military and the challenges and opportunities that come both being deployed abroad, um, but even, you know, in your in, in service, not abroad. I think, you know, as women anywhere in the world, you're going to face some level of sexism. Um, and, and that varies depending upon where you live and, and what career you're in. I don't think I realized that there was sexism in America at all. I think I had a very naive, idealistic vision of America. It's the land of the free. Everybody's equal. Everybody gets the same opportunity, the same footing, and you just, you do your best and if, and you will succeed. The first realization that that is not true, that that is a, a fallacy, was when, uh, when we received our, our rankings uh, for ROTC, and there were 18 of us in the bottom six were the six women that were in the class. Um, I mean, it just doesn't even look right, right? It doesn't take anybody, anybody from the outside looking in says that's probably not right. And that's when Colonel Swain um, took a look and took a look at our, our grades and how well we did at our camp and 
our, you know, activities that we were involved in. And he kind of reshuffled the deck when he came in. And he gave us a very, I think, a more a fair rating, um, of course, in my opinion, because I moved up. <laughs> he did change the, or- the order of merit list that we had. Uh, but I realized, I realized that I was, I was probably put in the bottom just just because of my gender. And that's really unfair. And then in the military, I, I honestly, I, I, I don't feel that I've encountered a great deal of sexism. Um, but I think a lot of times that's because no one's going to come out and say they're sexist. No one's going to tell you you can't do something or you're not good enough because you're a woman. I feel like a lot of times the worst sexism is the sexism you, you, you really can't detect. Right? The worst sexism is when another man has to tell you that someone else is sexist and to avoid them or that you will never get ahead because that person will not let you. Um, and that's happened a couple times. There's been a number of folks, um, not my current job, but my last job, there was a gentleman um, that I worked with and, and he said, hey, you know, our boss, our boss two levels up, he's a sexist a-hole. Stay away from him. I was like, what? No, he's not. He's great. He's a great person. He's wonderful to me. I don't understand what you're saying. He's like, nope, he's terrible. You should not be around him ever. He, and you're not going to get ahead in this organization with him in charge. And that, I mean, and you have to take those comments to heart, right? Because he is doing this, not because he is sexist, because he is looking out for my best interest. He is warning me. He is warning me of something I cannot see, but that he knows to be true. Um, and then I had another, you know, another just recently I, I experienced, um, I work with the, the military in my current job um, and with government civilians and, and other contractors. And I had been suggesting to another team, hey, I, I think you should do this. I think, and they would agree, and then they wouldn't do it, and then they would fail. And then I would say, hey, remember when I told you to do that? I think you should give that a try now. And they wouldn't do it. And they would fail. And then they would finally do it, you know, third try. Um, and it's been a year of, of, of them failing hard twice before they finally pick themselves up and, and do just the thing that I recommended in the beginning. And, and I genuinely really enjoy the company of one of the guys. He's great. And I said, hey, I have failed you. I have asked you for a year to do these things. And, and as a as a you know, person trying to help you and help us be our best, I have given you advice and, and it didn't resonate with you and you didn't take it. And now you're doing those things and now you recognize that that advice that I gave you was the right thing. And, and why, how was I poorly conveying that message in a manner that you would not receive it? And I had that conversation with him and he said, you know, I don't, I don't know, Nicole, I'm going to have to think on that. And, and, you know, I was probably just, just new and just, there was so much coming at me and I didn't, didn't know. Um, and I had the conversation with another coworker with my husband and both the other coworker who's kind of on the outside looking in and, and both my husband kind of said the same thing is that, you know, it's an active duty officer and a retired Lieutenant Colonel and you're, you're a contractor, right? There's a hierarchy for everything in the military. Everything is rank ordered. That's, that's how the military functions. And they said, you're a contractor. And I said, yeah, I said, ah, I'm a, I'm a woman too. And my coworker said, I'm glad you said that, not me. But yes, yes, that's, that's a part of it. Uh, and that just, it just sucks. 
just sucks. I just want us all to be the best and just, I just, and my advice, and my advice to them came from them both being new in the, the job, brand new in the job, no experience in it. And I had done the job for eight years. You know, I, I know it better than they do still. And, and I was trying to be my nicest, most, most helpful self. It wasn't motivated from a position of, I know better than you or any of that. I was trying to help them, um, trying to help us all. And it's just a shame that, that in part, and there are many reasons for, for every problem, but in part the reason they probably didn't listen to me is, is because I'm a woman, and that's, that's too bad. What do you want the public to appreciate about the United States military response to the September 11th attacks that are lacking in the mainstream narrative? You know, I think, I think in these you know, kind of hyper-polarized times that we live in, I wish not just the military, but America in general, I wish people could reflect on that time when I think we all kind of came together. You know, we were a united people. We weren't Republican. We weren't Democrat. We weren't supporters of this or that. We were just Americans who cared for one another, loved one another, loved our country. We wanted what was best and we wanted to protect ourselves and, you know, defend freedom. And there was just, it just, America felt different. You felt connected. Um, and I feel like in America right now, you don't feel like that. You have to feel like you pick a, you've picked a team. And I certainly haven't picked a team. And I don't think most of us want to pick a team. You're not A or B. You're not blue or red. I mean, I, I honestly believe that 60 or 70% of Americans believe in the same things but yet we tend to get pulled to the far extremes. I wish we could go, go back to that place where we all cared for one another and we didn't need to choose sides. As we engage in this conversation in mid-September 2021, the Taliban has retaken Afghanistan following U.S. troop withdrawal. There are also ongoing attacks on U.S. facilities and on the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq. As someone who has experienced the conflicts firsthand on the ground, what concerns do you have about the future of Afghanistan and Iraq and the Middle East more broadly? So I, I want to preface this by saying I, I did not serve in Afghanistan. That was not a war I was a, a participant in. Um, I, I was only in Iraq. Uh, my husband served extensively both in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I do, I do think withdrawing from Afghanistan was the right decision. Um, I, I do not want my daughters fighting in Afghanistan. And I don't think America has the commitment for the nation building for, I mean, look at how long we've been in Japan and Germany, right? Nation building takes a really long time. It's a generational thing. And I, we, we, we obviously don't have the will for something like that. Um, and so I am glad that we have withdrawn. I am horrified, embarrassed, and ashamed at the way it has happened. I am on a daily basis, saddened for the people that helped us that we left behind. And while it was a, a monumental effort, the airlift to get people out of there, the, the people that we have left behind that are still there, that groups are still working to, to try and get out. Um, I, I wish I could see our levers of government coming together to continue to rescue those people that have aided us because there are still thousands of people there 
that are probably going to die horrible deaths um, because they helped America. And so I, I wish I wish that the media was paying more attention to that. Um, there's been a couple articles, um, the Pineapple Express, the uh, Digital Dunkirk. There are a couple different groups of U.S. citizens that are working to rescue these people. Um, and it shouldn't be U.S. citizens doing that. It should be the whole, all the powers of the American government working still to get those people out of there. And I don't see that happening. It's hard to watch something like that, I think, for veteran or not for any American citizen. Um, I think maybe just veterans are a little more aware of the atrocities that those people are going to endure because we've heard stories, we've seen it. Um, and those, many of those people are going to die horrific deaths and their crime is helping America. And that shouldn't happen. Nicole, thank you so much for spending some time and sharing your story with us. Um, we truly appreciate the sacrifices that you and your husband and your family have made serving our country and serving our democracy. We, we want to recognize that democracy does require sacrifice, and that sacrifice is not always an equal burden um, or not an always equally distributed burden. What advice do you have for individuals who have not served in the military for how they can contribute to strengthening and reimagining democracy? Vote. That's the cornerstone of our democracy is voting. And every person ha should have that vote. And it should be in a democracy, in our democracy, it should be the easiest thing you do. It really should. And I I support federal minimum standards for for that right to vote. And I, I can remember in Virginia waiting in line for a half hour to vote and being angry that it, I had to wait a half hour. And then I see in these other places where people are waiting four, five, six, 12 hours to vote. And that is shameful in the richest country on earth, the richest country in the history of the world. People should not have to wait that long. And I think especially in a country that has such a checkered history of voting rights and of fair representation, that we should be as an entire country doing everything we can to secure the right to vote for all of our citizens, every single one. That's what will make our country greater and our, our democracy greater is that, in my opinion, it is that it's voting. It's, that's what democracy is. I heard this somewhere, and I'm paraphrasing that, you know, we always think society moves forward and sometimes it moves backwards. And, um, you know, I, I do think in, in, to some degree we are potentially witnessing that backslide. And my hope is that it will continue to move forward. You know, one step back, two steps forward. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin. JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednickus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement 
at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.